This evening I would ask that you would turn to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. It is one of the last of Paul's epistles in order listed in your Bible. It comes just before the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Oftentimes it's easiest to find by starting at the back and working your way to the left. We're going to be looking at this book over the next few weeks in the continuation of our series in both of Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica. And it has fallen to me to take the first chapter in this, chapter 1. That will be our text this evening, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would make your word effective to us by the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. That these words would not be something that we just hear or glance at, but that we would allow your word to take deep root in our heart. That your word would spur us on to action. That your word would cause us to love you more, Lord. That your word would cause us to love your people more. And that your word would cause us to love your gospel more. 
Lord, we ask this evening that as we end this Lord's Day, we would end it with our thoughts of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. We come now to the opening of this second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. As you have perhaps known, we have been going through the first epistle to the Thessalonians over the last few months in a staff sermon series, and we're now transmitting to 2 Thessalonians. It's very much a continuation of the first letter. This book was written shortly after Paul wrote his first letter. And there is a reason for that. Paul had received a troubling report. He indicates this in the third chapter, in the 11th verse, that he hears that some among the church walk in idleness and are busybodies. And so he's following up on his first letter with a second. He strikes many of the same themes. But we have to remember once again that this is a very young church. Paul has come... He preached the gospel, many believed, they established a church, and Paul had to go on. And so even especially the leadership of this church is very new to the faith. They have what might seem to us basic questions like, did Jesus already come back and we missed it? What are we supposed to do now that we have come to believe in Jesus? And so this young church was a faithful church, It was a very giving and generous church. We know from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that this was the church that gave above and beyond sacrificially to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And so what is happening here at this church is that there are some who are so obsessed with the doctrine of the second coming that they literally refuse to work. They said there's no sense in working. Jesus is coming back any minute. Why waste our time? Once again, Paul wants to make this doctrine clear. The prominence of that doctrine in this letter makes clear to us that it can affect daily Christian living. Even in our own age, we have Christians who say, well, Jesus could come back, and the famous phrase is, you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. Why bother doing anything in the world? Why bother seeking to see the Lord's name proclaimed and glorified throughout the world. And what Paul is showing to us is that it is always right to seek God's glory everywhere in his creation. And so Paul wants to make sure that they stay on the path that they have begun with. And he begins this letter in this first chapter with an emphasis on the glory of God in everyday life and in difficult times. Perhaps some had used a focus on the second coming to try to escape suffering and persecution. But Paul reminds them that God will be glorified and that their lives are an important prelude to Christ's return. And so in this chapter, Paul shows them three places to look for God's glory. God glorified in perseverance. God glorified in punishment, and God glorified in perfecting. Yes, there's your alliteration. Perseverance, 
punishment, and perfecting. As we open up this chapter, Paul begins with his typical greeting to the church from himself and Silvanus and from Timothy. And he gives them a greeting of grace and peace from God himself. And then he begins to show that God is glorified in their perseverance as a church. He starts with his focus on God. He begins with answered prayer. Now, let me take a brief aside before I even begin. Do you see what Paul's doing here? In times of trouble and persecution and pain and heartache, Paul says the very first thing you should do is thank God for the prayers he's answered. Now, that doesn't seem to make sense until we think about how practical that is. How can we find hope in our difficulties? Well, the best way is to think about how God has already delivered us, how he has already answered our prayers, how he is already with us. And so Paul gives thanks to God in this way in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Paul says we ought to do this. This is something we are to do. It is a requirement. It's not optional, if you will. As we look out over the church, as we look out over our lives, we begin by honoring God for his work. And this is not something temporary. It's not as if God comes in fits and starts. That we could go five or ten years between answered prayers. Now, do you see what Paul says here? We ought always to give thanks to God. That's rainy days and sunny days. That's difficult times and blessed times. We ought always to give thanks to God. And Giving thanks to God, going to God in prayer, is not just a way to deal with our troubles. Paul says, it is right to do this. The word that he uses is very direct. This is the right thing to do. It is best for us. It is fitting. It is what God is owed and deserves. So let me ask you this. How much of your life is directed Godward. Do you see God in the details of your life? Do you give thanks to Him daily for the little things that come to you? Or are you tempted, like many of us, to just take for granted that you woke up in the morning and that the sun was there and that you had air to breathe and that you had a roof over your head and that you had food to eat and you had friends to talk to. You see, these are not just random occurrences. They're blessings of God. And we should be a people who praise and thank God for all that he gives to us. Now, Paul here specifically gives thanks to God because his prayer was answered. What he says here is, we give thanks because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, this is interesting and it would require much more context if we had not just finished the book of 1 Thessalonians. But to help perhaps those who weren't here those weeks, if you flip back just a little bit in your Bible 
to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, you will see Paul telling the Thessalonians what he is going to pray for. And in verse 10, he prays most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. See what Paul's done there? He's praying that their faith would be expanded, that it would grow. And then now here he says, I thank God that your faith has grown. And what he does is he attributes it all to God. He doesn't say like perhaps so many so-called preachers or evangelists would in our day and age. I'm so thankful that I was able to give you directions. I'm so thankful that you purchased my series on faith growing. Buy my book and my video series on how to grow your faith tenfold. Aren't you lucky to have me? No, Paul says, I prayed to God and God has delivered. This shouldn't be a surprise. And in doing this, he's reminding the Thessalonians that that's the way things work. God is the one who is at work. He's the one that makes things happen. It's similar in verse 12 of chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. He's also praying that the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Come back to our text. We give thanks to God that the love of every one of you is increasing. There it is again. Paul says you needed more faith. You needed more love. I prayed to God. And now I am so thankful that God has delivered, as he always does. And this is not just a small increase. The way Paul describes it is remarkable. Now, remember, again, there is a short period of time. It may even be months between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And he says that your faith is growing abundantly. Now, this is a wonderful word. Literally from the Greek, it means to superabound. You probably are familiar with the word abound in the Bible. That God's grace abounded. But this is not just abounding. This is super abounding. This is XL abounding. This is abounding that you have to go and get at Costco. It's so big. That's how God has delivered on Paul's prayer. It is like a tree that spreads its roots out and spreads its limbs to cover a gigantic area. And then with respect to their love, he uses another word. He says that it is increasing. Now, again, this is not an incremental thing. Paul is not saying to them, I'm so glad that you have achieved 0.3% increase in love. No, the word that he uses here is used to describe a flood. It is expansive. It is extensive. What Paul is doing here in short form is saying, your love has extended not just in your family, not just in your church, but in everyone you come into connection with. My prayers have been answered. He also says that you as a people are living testimonies to God. He says that you have relied on God and that your steadfast and your perseverance has caused you to endure. Faith brings about this kind 
of endurance. There are at least three practical things that a strong faith gives to us. The first thing is that a strong faith gives us assurance. We tend not to doubt our salvation. We tend not to doubt God. The stronger our faith is, the more assured we are of the promises of God. And that just makes sense because what is faith but believing and trusting the promises of God? The second practical thing that a strong faith does is it spurs us to do more and more for God. To attempt great things for God, to use the language of the missionary. And so if you would see your faith strengthened, then take on tasks for God. Do more for God. Because the more you do for God, the more you are able to see God at work, to see God fulfilling His promises. It's not as if we do more work and we are more accomplished and we realize we're more valuable. No, the more we are at work from God, for God, the more we see God's glorious work. We see that it could not happen without God. And the third very practical thing is a strong faith makes us less apt to stumble with temptations. You may be sitting here tonight struggling with temptation. Struggling with a sin that entangles you. A secret sin, perhaps. A sin that no one around you even knows about. And you've tried to shed that sin. And if you are like many of us, you focus on the sin... And you say, I'm not going to commit this sin. I'm not going to do this sin. I'm going to think about this sin so I can thrust it away from me. But you see, what Paul's telling you here is you need to have faith. You need to focus more on God and less on sin. You need to have your faith strengthened. And in that strengthened faith, you will be able to deal with temptation. And the result of this is praise to God. It's praise that is emphatic. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. We ourselves boast about you. Not just I, but all who are with me. Know that we are praising God, and it is expansive. It's not just Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. He says, in the churches of God. And we know this is true. We can read 2 Corinthians and Paul is giving an object lesson to the Corinthians, basically saying crudely, be more like the Thessalonians. Let me tell you about them. Let me tell you about them in their suffering and in their lack, how giving and generous and gracious they are. Paul is going around the world, praising them for the work that God has done in them. Because you see, who they are and how they have persevered is evidence of God's work. Paul writes, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering. Have you ever thought about the fact that perseverance in tribulations and persecution is evidence that you are in Christ? I think far too often we think it's maybe evidence that we're not in Christ. That if we're experiencing bad things, that somehow we failed God or God has left us. 
We listen to the prosperity preachers who tell us, if we're in Christ, we should always be healthy, we should always be wealthy, we should never have any problems. And we stop and we wonder, why am I sick? Why do I have more months than money? Why do I have broken relationships? And what Paul is saying here is that in your persecution and in your afflictions, God is showing that you are worthy of His kingdom. Let me tell you something hard. And I'll preface it by saying, I don't like this at all. Suffering is not an evil to be avoided at all costs. I don't like that statement. I don't like suffering. I don't like having bad things happen to me. And I'll tell you as your pastor, I complain when suffering comes to me. And I moan and whine when suffering comes to me. But I need to trust God's word, not my predisposition. Suffering is not good. It's not something we should seek out. But it is not something that is to be avoided at all costs. Because it is a means of working out God's eternal purposes in our lives. We should not be concerned with the temporary things in our lives. They're temporary. God's not concerned with that. He's concerned with how much like Christ you are. How you are developing your relationship with Christ. He is concerned with making you His child. With bringing you to Himself. With building His church. He's not concerned with whether your stock portfolio went up this week or last. He's not concerned with whether your car is in the shop or not. You see, we need to have a heavenly view of persecution and affliction. That God is glorified in the midst of them. The second thing we see is that God is glorified in punishment. I might have said God is glorified in judgment, but I'm trying to keep my alliteration. Because you see, that's what the punishment is. It is judgment. Don't think of this as God waving His finger at anyone who has ever sinned. No, this is the judgment that God brings to those who have rejected Christ and His gospel. This is the negative aspect to God's justice. The positive aspect to God's justice is that the redeemed of the Lord are freed from their sin because His justice has been satisfied in Christ. But those who reject Christ don't have their sins forgiven. They don't know the sweetness of forgiveness. They've rejected the grace of God. They've rejected the gospel. And so what Paul writes is in verse 6, Since in, indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This is not revenge. It is justice. But God's justice does grant relief for us. Now let me tell you something else that I think will be of comfort to you. It is okay to look for final rest. To be freed from the difficulties and the challenges and the bruises of this world. Think of your life, for example, like a bow with a string. Much of our life is lived with the string of the bow being drawn taut. 
We long for the day when the bow will be at rest. When there will be no tension. When there will be no harm and difficulty. And we understand that this is okay because Paul is looking forward to this as well. In verse 7 he says, not only will God grant relief to you, but he will grant it as well to us. Paul is not saying, I love suffering. I love being thrown out of cities. I wish they would whip and beat me more. I wish they would shipwreck me more. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying we have to endure and persevere in it. But God will bring justice. And he will be glorified in that. And that will be seen in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes again, he will uncover what is hidden. God will come and grant relief when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. And so what will be revealed is that Jesus is real. Everyone who has mocked the Lord Jesus Christ by calling him a fairy tale, by saying he's not real, he's a crutch for weak people, they will see him as he is, that he is real. And that he is Lord. Now, do you notice what Paul does here when he describes the second coming of Christ? What does he focus on? He focuses on Jesus. Not on all the myriad of details. I think so often as Christians, we get curious. There are things we wish that were in the Bible. We want to know more and we wish it was in the Bible, and we try to find it in the Bible. We want to know exactly when Jesus will come, and where it will be, and at what time of day, and all of the other details. And what Paul says is, what you need to know is that Jesus will come back, and that He will be Lord, and that He will have all authority. He will come from heaven. That He will have all glory and power. He will bring His mighty angels, and that He will come in all majesty, in flaming fire. Do you have that picture in your mind? No one will be able to look away. I can't tell you from this exactly how every eye will see the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't think of a category for that because when I think of objects, there's an object here in Houston, they don't see it in Dallas. They don't see it in Atlanta. When there's something in New York City, I don't see it because it's in different places. I don't know. But I tell you that Paul says that every eye will see, that Jesus will return, and it will be unmistakable that it is Judgment Day. Now for the Christian, Judgment Day is glorious. It is freedom forever from sin. It is being united with the one we long to be with. It is the entrance into the marriage feast of the Lamb. It is being reunited with all of the saints who have gone on before us. Judgment Day holds no pain, no sorrow for the believer. But for those who reject the gospel, the scripture tells us that they will wish that the mountains could fall on top of them. So what does that tell us here today? It tells us that if you're here this evening, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then you need to believe on Jesus. It's your only hope. It's the only place you can go for refuge. It's the resolution and the solution 
for God's judgment. God will be glorified in His judgment. But the question is, will you see that glory as one who has been saved and enters into rest? Or will you see that glory by being compelled to kneel before the King of the universe? You see, it really is just a revelation of the gospel, of the justice that God has given. God has told us that we are sinners worthy of hell and that the way that we can be rescued from that is the work of Jesus. These are very serious matters. Matters of eternal punishment. Matters of separation forever from God. There are some who espouse a very foolish doctrine called annihilationism. In which they say that God can satisfy his justice by blotting out his enemies and sinners. But the scripture is very clear. That sin deserves not just punishment, but eternal, unending punishment. That's what awaits those who reject the gospel. Now, if that sounds harsh, and if that sounds challenging, remember that all you need do is believe. It's not as if God has said, you need to do these 150 things to satisfy me, maybe. No, he says, all you have to do is believe. Believe in the one who is to come, and then when he comes, you will see him, and you will adore him. God is glorified in punishment. Finally and briefly, in the last two verses of our text, God is glorified in perfecting. That is, in our sanctification. Paul writes, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for every good and every work of faith by His power. This is a cause for our prayer. God's, Paul's desire is for God to be glorified, not just in perseverance, not just in punishment and justice, but in you. Paul wants to see God glorified in you and in your life. And so to that end, he prays that the Thessalonians and you and me would live worthy, that God would make us worthy of his calling, and that he would fulfill in us every good work of faith. Paul says, you're not on your own. It's not up to you. He prays that God would strengthen them and their resolve, and strengthen them in their work by faith. Why? So that Jesus might be glorified in them. Do you see that? In verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Again, we need to orient our thinking. We might think that Paul wants God to be glorified in us so that we could be magnified, so the church could be glorified, so that people could see how good the people of God are. But that's not what Paul says. He says the point of God being glorified in you is so Jesus gets the glory. And of course, that makes sense. 
Because the only reason there's any good in us is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it makes sense because for the Christian, Jesus' glory is our glory. That's what we long to see. We long to see Jesus magnified, to see Him glorified. And that reminds us that all that we have is of grace. Well, when we come to know who God is, we should be looking for Him everywhere in our lives. We should be looking to see His glory and to see Him at work. God is not absent in times of suffering and persecution. His glory does not need to appear in the way and at the times that we want it to. We need to trust that God is in control and that He is preparing us for the return of Jesus. Let's pray.